Please turn with me to Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. If you don't have a Bible, maybe you can use a friend's Bible next to you. Um, and if you, don't, if you have not gotten one of those Mark handouts yet, or the Mark booklets yet, come talk to me and I'll also give you one, okay? After. So to remind you, to refresh your memory of what's going on in Mark, first, remember that on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus revealed himself as the glorious Son of God. James, Peter, and John were on that mountain with him and were absolutely terrified. Who remembers that? Some of you? Okay, cool. Secondly, Remember that after coming down from that mountain, Jesus met the rest of his disciples, and they were trying to cast out a demon, but they were trying to do it without praying. Who remembers that? Okay, cool. The father of the child says to Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. And so Jesus mercifully heals the boy and sends them home on their way. You guys remember that? Good. All right. So we pick up that story in Mark chapter 9, verse 30. I'll actually be reading that text throughout the sermon, so be sure to have a Bible with you so you can follow along. But let's pray, and then we'll get into the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, ask for your help to handle this text rightly. You know how heavy it is, and you know how life-giving it is, Lord. So I pray that you help us to pay attention and hear you, Lord. We want to hear you. I also pray, Lord, that you'd help us to see what true greatness is. It's your son. And Lord, as we lower ourselves and humble ourselves and become like him, we too will be truly great. Lastly, Lord, I pray for those students especially who are sick, either with COVID or a fever or or something else entirely, Lord. I pray for those who have been injured through sports or just by living life in a sin-cursed earth. I pray for those who are sick with anxiety um, and who suffer in so many different ways that are even hard to put into words. Ask, Lord, you'd be with them. You'd heal them. You'd show them their love, your love. And, Lord, you'd even use us to comfort them and to remind them that of how good you are, Lord, to those who are weak and brokenhearted. I thank you so much for this time, Father. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to be great. In fact, my sinful heart doesn't just want to be great. It wants to be first. First in importance, first in priority, first in glory, first in achievements. After all, there's no glory in being last. There's no glory for being the slowest racer, no glory for being the worst baseball player, no glory in being the dumbest student. Only the best, the first, the fastest, the smartest get the glory. Or if you take it to the extreme, as one of the dads at Lighthouse likes to say, remember, second place is just first place loser. You want to be great too. Some of you have made school, sports, or music your ambition. You study and you practice long into the night. You set your eyes on your dream school, MIT, Harvard, not UCLA, just kidding, UCLA too. You set your sights fixed on that competition that tournament coming up, that next level. You sacrifice your time, your body, your relationships for your ambition. Whether it's school, soccer, baseball, art, video games, cross-country, violin, piano, money, popularity, fashion, whatever. You want to be the best. You want to be number one. If this is you, you want to be first in glory, and we are very similar. 
You want to be seen as important, as accomplished, as strong, as one who both gains literal and metaphorical trophies. You want to convince yourself of your importance and convince others of your importance. At its simplest, your sinful heart says, look at me. Now, I guess what others of you are thinking. You're thinking, I don't want to be great. That is, that is not me. I don't want to live a normal, comfortable, chill life, right? Not ruffle any feathers, not stand out, not make any waves. Um, if this is you, I can imagine that your ideal days like to chill and watch Netflix or something. Um, and that's fine. But you want to be great just in a different way. You want to be first not in glory, but in priority. You want to be first in priority. Because life to you is about you, your comforts, your ease, your pleasures. You want the world to meet your needs, to make you feel loved. At its simplest, most sinful state, your heart says, serve me. So no matter who you are, whether you're ambitious or chill or anything in between, your natural desire is to put yourself first. Your heart says, glorify me, take care of me, honor me, love me, make me first. The Bible describes this perfectly. And it says that we're lovers of self and haters of other people. And frankly, it's, it's not obvious only in our terrible sins, but even obvious in our subtle everyday sins. For example, let's say there's one piece left of your favorite dessert. You want it, right? You want it. You don't want to let your sibling eat it. You don't want to let your mom eat it. You want it. You want to eat it. When someone praises you for doing something great, you feel that urge in your heart to chime in. Oh, but I did something better. I was faster. I was smoother. I was cooler. When it's someone else's birthday, we secretly look forward to the day when it'll be our birthday, because then we can get all the attention, all the presents, and all the praise. We compare ourselves to others. We look at their clothes, look at their stuff, look at their skills, look at their scores, and we're happy when we're better than them and devastated when they're better than us. We want the best grade, not the worst grade. We want to win, not to lose. No one has to teach you that, right? No one, no one has to teach you that. We love ourselves without even trying. We want to be first. First in, first in other people's lives, first in other people's eyes, first in our own eyes, first in glory, first in priority. But our text today challenges us and says, is that really greatness? Is it true greatness to live for yourself? Is it true greatness to be popular, to be the best, to be a winner? Jesus says something totally different in Mark chapter 9, verse 35. Look with me. Mark chapter 9, verse 35. He sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. That's our key idea today. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. First point, who is the greatest? Who is the greatest? Answer, Jesus. Look at me at verse 30. And they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Verse 31 says that he was teaching his disciples, meaning he's continually telling them this over and over and over again about his death and resurrection. 
But the disciples didn't get it. They couldn't fathom the idea of him dying. He's supposed to save Israel, right? How can you save Israel when you're dead? You can't. And the text doesn't say why exactly, but they were afraid to ask him a question about it. Who's ever been afraid to ask a question of like a teacher or maybe a pastor? I have, right? We all know what that feels like. We're intimidated. We don't know what kind of answer we're going to get. So the disciples don't know what's going on, and they're too afraid to ask anything. The point of this section is that Christ is the greatest who's ever lived because he humbled himself. He's the only one who's worthy of receiving honor, glory, blessing, fame, and praise. He's the best. He's number one. Because he willingly laid his life down for you and for me. He's greatest because of his humility. Think about it with me. Where was Jesus born? And how was he born? Was he born like some you know, fancy palace? He's like the king or the prince of you know, some fancy king somewhere? No. He's born in a barn. He's put into a food tray as his bed. And no one cares about him except these ragtag shepherd people and angels. Such humility of Christ marked his entire life. He took the path of loneliness on the way to exaltation. First the valley of death, then the mountain of exaltation. First the cross, then the crown. First humiliation, then the honor. Philippians 2, which is one of my favorite passages in the Bible, it says that Jesus was in the form of God, but he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. How? He took on the form of a slave, being made as a man. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, being obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's low. That's as low as you can go. And yet, God exalted him and freely gave to him the name which is above every name. That means he made him number one. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Those who are in heaven and on earth and in hell. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is great because he served. Jesus is great because he was humble. He was eternal God, and yet he willingly became man to be crucified for us. That's why Jesus is first. You can write that down like big, bold letters in your mind or on your notes. Jesus is first. And if Jesus is first, that means you're not, and means I'm not. If we really believed that, it would fundamentally change forever how we actually lived. For example, we would be patient with other people. When they sin against us, when they take our stuff, when our sibling walks into our room and we don't know why they're there and we don't want them there, we can say to ourselves, I'm not the most important person in the world. I don't deserve to be loved or served. Jesus is. Jesus loved me, and therefore, if he was willing to love and serve me, by his grace, I can love and serve others too. Let's be honest. Who thinks that's really easy? You know, loving other people, always thinking of them before yourself, being humble. Okay, cool, you got a few people in here. Okay, let's be honest. It's much easier to slam the door to your room because you're angry. It's much easier to sulk when you don't get your way, right? It's much easier to just complain because people are not taking care of you. That's how I feel. And sadly, we're not the only ones. Just look at the disciples. Look at the disciples. Our second point is, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Verse 33 says, And they, the disciples and Jesus, came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. 
Now, Jesus asked a pretty simple question, right? What were we talking about? What do you do on your long car rides? When I was a kid, um, they hadn't invented minivans with TVs in the ceiling yet. So my dad, um, he bought a small TV, and he like bungee corded the thing in between the front seats. And it was awesome. We could like, watch movies, we could play video games. Um, it was really, really fun. <laughs> so on the way to San Francisco, that's what we would do. We'd watch movies and play video games. And if my grandma asked me, hey, Keith, Grant and Greg, my brothers, what did you do on the car ride? Easy question, right? Easy question. We watched Pokemon. We played video games. So when Jesus asked the disciples, what were you discussing on the way, why do you think they kept silent? They couldn't remember? No, it's because they're ashamed. They're ashamed. They had been arguing about who was the greatest among them. Can you see the irony? Jesus had just been teaching them about what he was going to do. He was going to die and be resurrected, demonstrating true humility and showing what true greatness is. And they followed that up by fighting about saying, no, 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 I'm greatest. I'm Peter. I'm the first. No, no, no. I'm John. I'm the one who loves Jesus more. No, 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 no. They're fighting about who's greatest when the greatest person is literally standing five feet in front of them. That's why they're silent. They're ashamed of what they talked about. And of course, when Jesus asked that question, it's not like he didn't know. He knew exactly what they were talking about. Verse 35 says, he sat down and he called the 12. He said to them, If anyone will be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. I wonder, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that true greatness is being the slave of all, of being the last in the room? That true greatness is about being the one whom the world doesn't care about at all, but whom God notices. That true greatness is being small and insignificant in your own eyes because you view others as more important than yourself. That true greatness is is someone who doesn't live for himself anymore, but lives for Christ, the truly great one. Do you believe that true greatness is to no longer live for your desires, to live for your wants, to live for your pleasures, but to live for the glory of God and the good of all people? Think with me. Who's the greatest person at youth group? Is it the preacher? No. Definitely not. Is it the small group leaders? No. Is it the most popular student? No. Is it the best basketball player, or the best pianist, or the smartest kid? No. If you want to find the greatest person here, the true number one, look for the one who's seeking to be last and servant of all. Look for the one who's taking out the trash, or cleaning up the mess on the floor. Look for the one who's finding lonely students and going trying to befriend them. Look for the one who's consistently interested in other people's good, in bearing other people's burdens. The one who's inviting the new kid to be their friend. If you want to be great, if you want to find the great person, look for the person who's listening intently to what other people are saying during small group. Look for the one who's joyfully serving and just loves to pray and encourage and love people in 10,000 different ways. Not just their friends, but everyone, even the least. That's the one who's truly great. In God's view, and God's view is the only one that actually matters, in God's view, the truly great person does not say, look at me, glorify me, but look at God. Isn't he wonderful? Glorify him. 
The truly great person does not say, serve me, meet my needs. But who can I love? And who, who can I show Christ to? And how can I be helpful and a servant, an encourager? Are you truly great? I know you're smart. I know you're really accomplished. I know that you are an amazing athlete. I know, I know even you know lots of Bible. You've come to church for a long, long time. But are you truly great? All of that stuff means nothing if you don't serve the Lord Jesus Christ, who is truly the great one. Sorry. Hello. Cool. So how do you serve Jesus Christ? How do you serve him? Do you serve him at all? How are you making yourself last and certain of all because Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and made himself the last and the servant of all for us. Serving him, not your grades, not your money, not your stuff, not your skills, not your clothes, not your knowledge, not your friends, serving Jesus is the true measure of greatness. To illustrate this, Jesus calls over one of the most unlikely teachers in the whole world. Look at verse 36 with me. He took a child, and he put him in the midst of them. And taking him into his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but he, him, who sent me. Now in our day, children are seen as adorable, right? I mean, we had uh, Pastor Francis's daughter, Kendall, come in today, and the whole staff just flocked around her because we love her and she's super cute, right? We put them in pumpkin patch costumes and we put pictures on Instagram and we gush about how cute they are, right? It's awesome. But in Jesus' day, children were not adored like that. Children are seen as the least important persons in society because, frankly, they're useless. That's how they thought about them. They're treated like property. You could even sell your own child into slavery. That's how they treated kids. In that culture, children were the epitome of what it meant to be last. But Jesus says, you want to be great? Then treat a child like this while he's hugging this child in his arms. He's saying, if you receive a child, the most unimportant person in your eyes, if you receive him like this, then you don't not only receive him, you receive me. And you do not only receive me, but you receive God the Father. In other words, to receive someone that the world thought of as totally unimportant in a way that treats her as worthy of care and love is to even love her as God loves her. That's true greatness. True greatness doesn't mean being the first, being the most skilled, being the most accomplished. It means loving all people, even the least. And if you want to summarize that, true greatness means humble service. So I want to talk about humility, and then I want to talk about service. Fundamentally, being humble means seeing God as number one, seeing others as number two, and seeing yourself as dead last. So God is number one, you're number two, excuse me, God is number one, others are number two, and you're dead last. If we really believe that God was number one, then we would live for him. We would have as our ambition to be pleasing to him in whatever we do. As we actually learned about from Pastor Kim on Sunday from 2 Corinthians 5, Christ died for all. Why? That those who live, us, would no longer live for themselves, but for him. Because God is number one. To put it in other words, dear Christian, your life is no longer about you. It's not about what you want. It's not about your desires. It's not about you. It's not about you getting that last piece of cake. 
It's about Christ. It's about the Christ who gave up his life so that you could be free. Free from the slavery of self-obsession. So that you could find your greatest joy, not in living for yourself, but for him. Our greatest joy as Christians is not saying, my will be done, but living for and in and through God. Dear Christian, your greatest joy is living for Christ, not for yourself. If we really believe that God is number one, and the others are number two, so God is here, others are number two underneath God, then we would love them. Then we could actually love them. Philippians 2.3 says that we should do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. So to be humble means to have a low mind, a lowly mind, that considers others as having surpassing importance more than us. What does it look like? How do we do that? It means we treat ourselves as servants, as those who exist to serve and not to be served. Servanthood flows out of a heart of humility. The next verse of, of Philippians 2 says that, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Meaning we should treat others as more important than ourselves, meaning that their good is more important than our good. Humble servants basically ask two questions throughout life. They say, who can I love and how can I serve? Who can I love and how can I serve? And this is so practical, you would not believe it. At home, what does it mean to be a servant? It means that you remember your family is your closest neighbor, and God commands you to love them. So when your siblings haven't done their chores yet, help them. When your mom has lots of laundry to fold and dishes to wash and rooms to clean and little kids to take care of, you make yourself useful without being asked, which is hard, I know. You remember that it's more blessed to give than to receive. At school, it means being the most helpful student in the class, both to your teacher and to your classmates. It means maybe even bringing a snack for that kid who always seems to forget his lunch at home. It means saying hi to somebody you've never met before and maybe inviting them to youth group so that they can know Jesus Christ too. At youth group and the church, it means looking for that girl who's sitting by herself, who doesn't have a friend in the world, and going and being her friend. It means finding that guy who's playing on his phone by himself and looping, in, looping him in with your friends. It means volunteering to serve during children's ministry, which, by the way, all of you can do, and maybe even in VBS. It means taking care of the kids during your parents' small group, which I know many of you already do. And it means maybe even asking your parents to join them in whatever they do to serve the church. Humble servants view everything in life as yet another opportunity to love because God loved them first. They seek to give, not to get. Now, when I turned eight years old, I realized something. I realized my two younger brothers, who are twins and four years younger than me, uh, would never, ever, excuse me, when I turned eight, therefore, I realized that their ages added up to eight, right? So, Philippus 4 equals eight. And that means next year, when they turned five and I turned nine, they would outnumber me. Literally, five plus five equals ten, so ten is greater than nine. Oh, my gosh, they're going to gang up on me and beat me in every game. So what I did is that year, I made it my ambition to beat them in everything. Pokemon, uh, soccer, lava tag, cards, running, king of the pool, piano, everything. It's my goal and mission to dominate my four-year-old brothers. And as you can imagine, I did it. It was like not hard. They're like four, right? So is that true greatness, trying to beat your four-year-old brother, <laughs> destroying them because I was worried that, you know, when I got older, they would always beat me? No. 
That's pitiful. Don't do that. Don't be like me, please. If you want to be truly great, be like Danielle Yuhara. Remember how this year we all met outside under the tent on Sundays and even a youth group under the tent on Fridays? Well, Danielle and her whole family got up super early to set up all of those chairs and set up all the stanchions and do all of the policies that we needed to follow for COVID. She didn't get a medal for it. Very few people thanked her. But she sacrificed for us, and God saw her love. And God says that that humble service is truly great. If you want to be great, be like Mason Shin. On one of our first youth groups this school year, without anyone asking to help, he popped up and started putting hot dogs in the buns and handing out to everyone. You guys remember that? Yeah. yeah. Now, if you know Mason, he did it with zeal. He was super happy. He didn't complain. He just wanted to love other people, right? He sacrificed even. It was unwilling to eat his own food until everyone else had gotten their food. He put others first before himself, and therefore God says that is truly great. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? If you want to fill in the blank there, it means humble service. It means humble service. But we don't easily choose to be humble servants, do we? Instead, we're tempted to do something very different. We're tempted to be proud. Third question, what does it mean to not follow Jesus? It means to be proud. To be proud or to have pride is to think that you're first, that you're number one. It's self-exaltation, it's self-obsession, it's arrogance, it's boasting. When we're proud, we're jealous of others when they get good things. When we're proud, we treat other people as unimportant. And in our passage, John, like the guy who wrote the book of John, John, the disciple, shows exactly what it means to be proud. Look at verse 38 with me. John said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, I want to notice three things here. Three things. First, John tried to stop someone from helping a demon-possessed man simply because he was not part of John's group. Casting out a demon can only be done by the power of God, as we saw in the previous passage. So the fact that someone else was doing it means that there is someone else who's believing God and praying and doing the miracles that was not part of the 12 disciples, right? And John was jealous. He was trying to stop a demon-possessed man from being free. That's evil. Think about it. Is Lighthouse Community Church the only church that preaches the gospel in the whole world? No, that's ridiculous, right? So think with me. Let's say if I said, oh my gosh, that person over there, he's not from Lighthouse, and he's preaching Jesus. We need to stop him. That's our job. Crazy, right? Absolutely crazy. But that's exactly what John is doing. He's saying, hey, hey, they can't do that. You can't cast out demons. You're not part of us. We're the real special followers of Jesus. We're the ones who are supposed to do the miracles. He's trying to make himself important. He's even willing to prevent someone from being healed to prove it. Secondly, John says, we try to stop him because he was not following us. Now that word us is very strange here. Think about it. When Jesus says to the disciples, calls the disciples, what does he say? Does he say, come follow us? No, he says, come follow me. Come follow me. No one's following the disciples. They're following Jesus. But by saying us, John reveals that he thinks he's on the same level as Jesus. 
thinks, oh, yeah, 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 like we're on the same plane as Jesus, and then, you know, me, and then Peter, we're all the same together. The people are going to follow us. But no, people follow Christ, not John. Third, when John brought this up, he expected Jesus to affirm him, to say, yeah, good job for doing this. He thought that Jesus was just like him, proud. But obviously Jesus isn't. And so he corrects him. Look at verse 39. He says, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. In other words, Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're wrong, John. It's my name, not our name. He says, it's not about you. It's about me. They belong to You belong to Christ, a.k.a. to me. Jesus can say this because he's truly the greatest, because of his perfect humility. He puts John in his place. But a sinful, proud heart says, I'm great. Look at me. Magnify me. Love me. A proud heart is actually a glory thief. It's a thief that tries to steal God's glory. In our pride, we seek to make ourselves God. We want to kick God off his throne, sit there ourselves, and we will decide what's right and wrong. We will decide that our needs will be met. I mean, this is the reason why we get upset when our parents and our siblings don't give us what we want, isn't it? It's, not because, it's because they violated the number one rule in our proud hearts. Bow to me. Isn't this also the reason why we get bothered when things don't go our way, when we don't get the grade that we want, when our friends don't treat us as we want, when, I don't know, we don't get the prize at school, It's because we think that God has not listened to our plans for our life, and he's messed up. We say to God, but I wanted that. Pride is what drives us to full-out rebellion against God, to stealing his gracious gifts, his blessings of our breath, our heartbeat, our thought, our happy moments, and we don't even give him an ounce of thankfulness. Pride is what makes us to try to eclipse the sun of God's glory with the little glow sticks of our hearts. We were meant to be moons that reflect his light, right? We talked about that, I think, two weeks ago. But like insane people, we think that we're the sun. Pride is what makes us prayerless. Why would we ask for help from God when we think we've got it under control? Why would we bring our needs to him when we think we actually have no need of him? Bless you. Pride is what makes us neglect the Bible. The Bible is the word of life. It's sweet in the honey and full of more riches than this world could ever know. And yet we'd rather do almost anything else. Sleep, hang out with friends, watch TV, play video games. We choose that which perishes over that which lasts forever. This is our pride. It's the sin that brings forth all other sins. It's the sin that mocks God and hates men. It's the sin that destroys friendships, teams, and churches. And this sin will bring us to hell. Look at verse 42 with me. In 42, Jesus gives one of the most serious warnings in the entire Bible. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, that means Christians, to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown to the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go into hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. 
It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. These little ones that Jesus is so concerned for is Christians. And the warning is this. It's better for you to die the worst death than to spiritually harm a Christian. This kind of sin against God's people hurts not just you, but the people whom God loves dearly. Those for whom Christ died. And youth leaders, this is particular relevance for us. Do we not know that we're leading eternal souls? And if we live in pride and self-exaltation, our students will follow. If we refuse to welcome the least and choose to love ourselves as first, what does that say about our Savior to them? To us, Jesus says, if that's the kind of person you want to be, a proud person, it's better for you to have a 100-pound weight tied around your neck and then be thrown to the ocean. How then should we live? How then should we live? But the application is not just for leaders. It's for everyone with a proud, glory-stealing, selfish heart. The consequence for that sin is hell. Hell is real. Hell is real. It's a place of eternal punishment where the wrath of God is poured out on unrepentant sinners because of their sin against him. Hell is where the worm that eats the body never dies. It's the place where the fire that burns forever gets hotter and hotter and is never quenched. Sinners there weep and grind their teeth in torment, and they will die continually forever. There's no chance of escape. There's no hope of rest. There's no end. There's only eternal, conscious, unimaginable, unfathomable, unbearable, inexhaustible pain and suffering in hell. There are no words I could use that would even come close to describe the terror of that place. And Jesus says in these warnings to flee. I mean, listen to the language he's using. He says, cut off your hand. Cut off your foot. Tear out your eye. There's nothing more important that you possess than your body. If someone said to me, hey, would you rather me chop off your arm right now with this machete or me take all your money? Easy choice. There's all my money. All of it. I like my arm. I want my arm. But what has more value than your body? Your soul. Your eternal soul. In our insanity, we think, oh, sin's not that bad. You know, being selfish doesn't really hurt anyone. I can be first. I can be great. I can proclaim myself as number one. That's no problem. Look at me. Please me. Bow to me. Think of me. Adore me. But Jesus says, your pride will drag you down to hell. Cut it off. Your self-obsession will damn you forever. Leave it behind. Your lust, your jealousy, your bitterness, your anger, your laziness will condemn you forever for eternity. Tear it out. Throw it from you. Hell should terrify you. I'm not going to do anything to ease that terror. 
It terrifies me. I don't want to go there. I don't want you to go there. So what should we do? When I share the gospel with my friends who have grown up in the church, I often say to them, you say you're a Christian, right? And that you're saved. But what are you saved from? A lot of times they don't have a good answer. I don't know. I never thought about that way. What am I saved from? So then I call up another question. Why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't God just say, oh, like, you know, I love you. I'm for you. I really want you to be in heaven, not go to hell. So here, just come up to heaven. No problem. Let's bring you up. And usually they're also stumped. I don't, I don't know why Jesus had to die. They never thought about that way. If they're stumped, it's probably because you're not a Christian. Here's the answer. We're saved from hell. When Jesus died, he saved us from hell by taking our hell and suffering in our place for our sin. He's the one that extinguishes our hell forever. God loves sinners like you and like me. Even though you're a glory thief, even though you've tried to kick him off his throne, he loved us. He loved me even though I'm guilty through and through. He loved me even though I deserve hell. His wrath against our arrogant pride cannot be exaggerated. But God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be betrayed, beaten, crucified, killed in our place for our sin. Meaning that when you look at Christ on the cross, you should say, that is what I deserve, and far worse. As Christ died on the cross, he drank up the full punishment of hell, so that anyone who believes in him would not suffer that hell, but be saved. We'd be given the gift of eternal life. We'd be able to live forever with him and not die. This is salvation. This is what we're saved from. We're saved from hell to God. And it's a gift. You can't earn that. I can't earn that. There's nothing we can do to purchase it. Christ purchased it. Christ paid the penalty. And he calls you to merely receive it. To receive it. Jesus is the servant of all, and therefore he's the greatest that there ever was. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead on our behalf. He loved us first so that we would believe in him. So they'll be transformed to no longer be these selfish glory thieves that live only for ourselves, but to live for him, for his glory, which is our great joy. So are you his? Are you his? If you are, then live for him and live like him. If anyone will be first, he must be last and servant of all. If you're not his, then come to him. You would not believe how often Leighton and Eric and I pray for you. By name that you believe in Jesus Christ. That is the thing we want more than anything for you. Believe in him. He says to you, come to me and I'll never cast you out. Come to me for forgiveness, for salvation from hell, for eternal life forever. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that you're a God who hates our sinful pride. And we thank you even more that you loved us even though we did not deserve it to send your son. He's the greatest because he died for the worst, even us. And now that you've exalted him, 
And we see his glory, we see his worth, we see his majesty and his beauty, that he is number one, Lord. Give us hearts to believe him. Give us hearts, Lord, that long to be saved, that we might know you and the joy of following our Savior. I thank you for every soul here, Lord. Would you not lose one? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.